hiding place In my opinion, one of the strongest and most interesting theater communities in the United States for new work and new plays has got to be Chicago. And that's for a couple of different reasons. One of which is that um, audiences in Chicago, the people who live there and see plays, have good expectations, in my opinion. Just the attitude of going to a show and what you expect to see. Uh, to me, audiences are just very receptive in Chicago to that kind of um, innovative spirit of art that just all, all supports new work in a cool way, provides for a really interesting uh, structure for Chicago theater. There's kind of tiers of theater is the way you hear people talk about it a, a lot. These tiers aren't <laughs> meant to uh, imply that their shows are better in any way. It's just that they have more money, they're bigger, they're more reputable, and things like that. So kind of at the top, you have the big theaters, ones like Steppenwolf and Goodman Theater in Chicago. And then uh, the next kind of size theater that you'll see are things like Looking Glass, um, interestingly enough, founded by David Schwimmer. Um, and then you get these mid-size, or Victory Gardens, I would, I would count in the kind of that size too. Um, and then the next kind of level, you get these mid-level, what they call kind of mid-level theaters in that area. And uh, that w that's where you'll see things like Remy Bumpo um, and lots of other interesting theaters. Uh, and then there's this whole mess of work that is um, independently produced, independently produced theater. Um, a lot of the times they're called storefront theaters because if you ever go to a strip mall, and see, like, some of those stores that are empty and have lease signs up. People will take over that space for a couple of months or even a season and produce work right in the storefront of the theater. So it's a really cool uh, kind of sp spirit in Chicago. So I think it's a good place to look a lot of the times when you're looking at what's new and what's forthcoming in theater. So today I decided I really wanted to look at one of my, one of the playwrights I look at as... Uh, defining a lot of what's happening right now in theater. And when I say that, I don't just mean like in style or form and being experimenting and stuff. I mean the writing itself feels so right now about the present moment. Today we're going to be talking about Ike Holter. I've got four of his plays. That's definitely because only four of them are available on Amazon, but I got these four. He's extremely prolific. Um, and I'm very excited to talk about him. He's a funny, interesting playwright that uh, covers a lot of interesting ideas in very personal ways. Uh, before we actually get into the episode, though, I do want to briefly talk about uh, each week that I am highlighting some organizations that I encourage you to give your money to, organizations that are doing really good work and really important things. I live in Louisville, Kentucky. I've been talking about the Louisville Bail Fund for the last couple of weeks. That's still going to be in the description. Um, it's really important. People are still uh, fighting these charges that they got while they were protesting um, the death of Priyana Taylor uh, at the hands of Louisville police, executing a very suspicious search warrant. I'm also going to be highlighting another organization here today as well, just because I want to get uh, more variety in the things that we are doing here. Today, I'm going to be also highlighting uh, the Black Art Future Fund, it's a really fantastic organization that gives grants to artists, not just theater artists, but artists of all kinds, to uh, advance uh, black culture in America. 
It's really brilliant. It's a great organization. So I'll be including that in the description below. Um, yeah, I wanted to highlight something a little bit more uh, positive this week. It's a really fantastic organization. Still need help, the Louisville Bail Fund, but I'm going to highlight this well. So let's go ahead and get into the episode. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you at the end. about Ike Coulter because uh, I actually met him one time. He's a very real person. <laughs> At Humana in, I want to say it was 2018, it would have had to have been, uh, they hosted the American Theater Critics Awards, um, and they, they awarded the best play produced outside of New York City when I was attending that, and Ike Coulter won for one of the plays we're going to talk about today, Wolf at the End of the Block. And I, I, he was, it was brand new to me. I had not heard of him before. I definitely should have, considering um, one of these plays that was really big and when I should have been aware of it. But um, he's so, he's so nice and so cool and he's very smiley. Um, I, I talked to him for just a handful of seconds and said, hey, where can I find a copy of that script? And he was like, oh, hit me up on Facebook and I'll send it to you. And I was like, oh, that's super cool. And then I couldn't find him on Facebook. So that was disappointing, but it's okay because you can, there, there's uh, Northwestern Publishing um, in Chicago has been producing, uh, rather publishing a lot of his work. So you can get four of his plays right now, all of which I'm going to cover today. The thing I do want to mention first, though, is that he's incredibly prolific. Um, he had his first play in 2012, which was Hit the Wall. It's the first one I'm going to talk about. And then he had a series of plays start coming out in 2017 that was part of what he called the Rightland Cycle. Um, seven plays culminated in the last one in 2019, um, set in this fictional neighborhood in Chicago. Three of the ones I have today are set in that cycle. And then he's got other ones outside of that. I remember it was a couple years ago. I'm going to have to look into this more specifically. But a couple of years ago, I remember being in Chicago and asking about I Coulter. And somebody that I was talking to said, oh, yeah, he writes so much. I think it was that season he had like three plays or four plays, I think it was actually, that were being premiered for the first time at like different theaters for their seasons in that year. So it's very cool. I'm going to go do a brief rundown of his career here. Uh, He started with Hit the Wall in 2012. Exit Strategy was his next one in 2014. Uh, after that, he did B-Side Studio, Sender, Light Fantastic, and Wolf at the End of the Block. That's the only things that are on his uh, Wikipedia. But if you go to his the, the front of any of these books, actually, let me go to the last one here. I think Wolf at the End of the Block has all of them. Yeah, there's Rightland, Exit Strategy, Sender, Prowess, Wolf at the End of the Block, Red Rex, and Lottery Day. I really want to read Lottery Day, and I can't get my hands on it, but I'm hunting for it. So... Uh, an interesting place to start with Ike Coulter is obviously at the beginning. His first play that got produced that was really big is produced at the Steppenwolf Garage, which is kind of like their experimental space. And it's called Hit the Wall. Hit the Wall came out in 2012. It's about uh, Stonewall. And the Stonewall writes in 1969, for those of you who don't know, that's marked as the a very important movement in gay, uh, moment in gay liberation, queer liberation, I should say, in the United States. It was a gay bar in New York City that was raided by police. One thing led to another, 
and there were riots for, I think, a couple of days. Uh, and Pride, each summer, that's what that's celebrating. It's celebrating Stonewall. Um, happens during Pride each year. So Ike Holter hits on a lot of interesting things. You notice uh, his, his signature style is, is present right away. Like what he wants to do in theater, to me, is very clear very quickly. Um, it's so this is this I mean it's that simple to really talk about what it's about it's about Stonewall but it's not about any real person so there's no character that that is called Marsha P. Johnson there's no character that is any specific person that threw the brick or anything like that um, they're just people that represent kind of various types of queer people which may seem a little problematic at first when you're talking about something as important as Stonewall, but it's, it's super effective because uh, the, the important thing I think is to remember about this play is that it, it's not really... It's not a send-up of Stonewall. It's not like meant to be a st- historically accurate representation of Stonewall. I don't think it's a good idea for theaters to do this play as we're celebrating Stonewall, or we're, you know, because that's not, I think that misses the point a little bit, and I want to get into what that actually is. When you look at these characters in this uh, character breakdown page at the very beginning, it's interesting what character names these have. So there's A. Gay, it's just A hyphen Gay, late 20s, early 30s, attractive, smooth-talking Harvard grad who can pass for straight. A clipped, uncaring vampire with a great closing argument. Uh, and there's one called Newbie, fresh off the boat, early 20s queer. Not only knows where the party is, he leads it. Uh, and it's interesting, all these other people too. Carson, who's kind of the main character. The interesting thing I found about this is that as you get into Ike Holter's work, you'll see that race is a really important given circumstance in most of his plays. However... He, it's interesting how he, he presents it to you as a reader because the character descriptions rarely tell you like the race of a character or even the gender of a character a lot of the time. I looked at this before I read it. I remember reading it the first time and looking at the character breakdowns and being like, there's no trans women in this play. How can, how can there be no trans women in this play? The, Stonewall famously... That riot had a lot to do with with trans women who were leading the fight. And then you find out as you read the play that, oh no, most of these characters are some kind of gender queer in a really in, in a nuanced and, and personal way. And it's just that the way that it gets revealed is just by how it gets revealed in real life. How it comes up between people is when those parts of your identity come up. So he he he's doing an interesting thing with identity in this play. I think the theme has got a lot to do with weaponizing your identity and using your identity in a really intentional and personal way. So it starts off at the very beginning with this monologue slash volley of people talking over each other, kind of coming in one by one. It's called I Was There, and it's all these people saying, I was there, I was there, I saw them throw the first brick. He kicked this, the da 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 Because the whole idea is that nobody really knows what happens. So at the very beginning, the way this play is framed has to do with um, how people want to be seen and the why people are saying that they're there and why that's important to them. 
And then you get into it, and you see people just constantly doing that over and over. People uh, using their identity um, as a weapon against other people, and also as a defense against other people. I'll give you, for instance, there's a really interesting scene pretty early here between these characters, um, Cliff and Carson, as they are called in the play. It's pretty clear that Carson is a trans woman, potentially even a stand-in for Marsha P. Johnson, and these two people meet at uh, uh, Judy Garland's funeral is where this actually starts. And uh, it's, it's actually various people meeting throughout the day and deciding that they're going to meet up at Stonewall in the evening, and that's when things go down. That's kind of the structure of the thing. And you're seeing the ways that all these people interact with each other. But Cliff and Carson meet at this funeral, and they're talking about Judy Garland, and they're talking about each other, and they're ta- trying to, to figure each other out a little bit. It's clear that Cliff's kind of interested in Carson, and Cliff's very sweet, honestly. So, uh, it goes pretty well. But then, these women who are sitting somewhere else in the funeral parlor come over and are like, hey, you guys are making us uncomfortable. Can you please stop doing that? You shouldn't even be really be wearing that here. And then when Carson's about to say something, it's, it's fucking brutal. She turns to her and she goes, um, don't look at me when you're talking to me. You make me, you make me feel disgusting. Don't do that. And Cliff is about to, like, defend Carson's honor on some way. Um, and the lady just basically lays out, like, listen, you can say whatever you want, but I can call the police and we both know what's going to happen. Just so clearly weaponizing her whiteness in that way, which is, I'm, I'm sure was very common at the time. Um, and then Carson, what Carson does is Carson actually does something that you're not expecting because they do have this, well, actually the character is described as a strong and silent type, but the strength is what really comes out to me when I'm reading that character. And it just didn't, I just didn't expect her to, um, bend to their whim, you know, just be like, okay, I'm very sorry, man. No, I shouldn't have done that. You're right. I I apologize. I shouldn't have said anything. We'll go right now. I promise. Cliff insists insists on holding her hand as they they walk out, and it's very, very nice. But it's just things like that, little things like that. I mentioned there's a character called A-Gay. It's very clearly, like, white, masculine, gay man that can, you know, pass for straight. Um, After everything starts going down at the end and people are, are, like, escaping, he kind of pulls another one of these really fantastic characters aside who's another trans woman and is like hey don't say anything come inside let's have sex right now i'm in charge blah 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 blah. and tana this other character is basically turning him down like kind of kind of wants to do it like the scene is is supposed to be kind of hot for them and they're interested but they turn them down because they're still looking for their friend and all this shit's going down at the bar and he turns around and is like well you better get out. Actually, he uses like four slurs right in a row in their face and is like, you better get out of here because you, I think he says, you faggots disgust me or something like that. Does the same thing that the white woman at the beginning of the play did, which was weaponize her identity. So all of these characters, I, I'm glossing over a little bit of these other characters. There's a lot of different people doing different things. Uh, shout out to Roberta. Oh my god, this is a great, so much, so much good language for the character. 
she's this uh, freedom fighter, uh, couldn't get in with any other organization because they weren't uh, fighting for freedoms in a justified way, like women's rights, and then she goes to the Black Panthers and feels like she's discriminated against because she's a woman and also that she's a lesbian. So she exists at this like perfect intersection for her to be like this really brilliant voice in the play that's just constantly speaking truth and is constantly getting turned away by people. But you as an audience member look at her and you go, oh my God, why is anybody listening to her? Yeah, and so it's really brilliant. The way that... Um, the characters all work together to present this idea of like the the interpersonal way of weaponizing your identity and then the way that Stonewall itself was about weaponizing your identity that's what that that whole thing was about it was that people were using their their queerness to fight back and to you know sounds basic but to be who they are it's clear to me why he got a lot of acclaim for this work and he's also got a really interesting specific style that comes up in the rest of it that shows up most clearly here that I want to talk about. In the first week of this podcast, I talked about Carol Churchill. One of the things that I didn't mention is one of her greatest contributions to the uh, playwriting medium, and that's the slash. If you read most modern plays, almost anything that's trying to be realistic since... Man, I should have looked at what was the first play that was used in. I'll put that in the corrections. But um, any play since then, there's these slashes that are in the piece every once in a while. It implies an, an overlap. The next character starts their line and actually does a pretty cool thing where it makes the dialogue feel more realistic because everybody's always talking over each other. And that's the way that natural conversation feels a lot of the time. I think I culture. Could you look at this, and there's a lot of those, especially in Hit the Wall, where everybody's constantly overlapping each other all the time. And because it mostly gets used for realism, I think that could the mistake could be looked at this as if that's kind of what it's supposed to be. But I, I think that it's more stylistic than that. It's more targeted than that. He does this cascading waterfall of language. It's just this flow and flow and flow of of words just constantly, constantly coming out. And um, it makes the thing move like a fucking wave, like this train that just kind of rolls over to you. Hit the Wall is a great place to start for his work. I mean, yeah, it's where he started. But it really shows him throwing everything out here, uh, all of his different ways, of little ways of talking. Oh, he does this cool thing where... He puts characters' lines in, like, quote marks sometimes. Um, and it's not, like, uh, it's not always them quoting somebody. It's, it's, I don't know, it's this implied way of saying it, like, almost sarcastic. But you get it by looking at it. It's really effective little piece of formatting that he does. And you see that early on here. And those are the things that I think of as kind of his signature style, this really kind of cascading... Um, flow of language that's just coming at you, coming at you, and he has this speed to him. I don't think any of his plays have an act break. They're all straight through, like, hour and a half, hour 20, hour and a half-ish, probably, pieces. There might be one in there, but Hit the Wall goes straight through. I had a friend who was in a production of this where they had to put in an intermission for bar sales, and I'm like, mmm, that would kill the momentum of this thing because of the way it moves. 
But yeah, I think that's the most important thing to know about that play and where to start because it gives you good focus on Ike Holter in that, like, he's not writing a play about Stonewall. He's writing a play about this, uh, the interpersonal weaponizing of your identity and Stonewall is a, like, really good place to set that and talk about that as a metaphor or analogy uh, uh, for doing that. Next after that, it was I think it was two full years before there was the this next play, and it is probably his most critically acclaimed. Uh, this well, other things have gotten awards, and he's got since gotten like general writing awards for just being a really good pro- prolific writer. Um, and but this one had the most like impeccable reviews of anything, and I think that it has like just a really, uh, it's a good refinement of the thing that he's doing in The Hit of the Wall, where he's taking a situation and he's showing you the interpersonal conflicts that come up because of that. The, the way that uh, these big social issues can infect your life really, really personally. And it's always super clear. Um, as, he, as he gets forward, his... his Writing, I think, from here on, gets extremely focused and pinpointed. Because, you know, there was that thing that was going around on Twitter recently that was that, in all caps, harsh writing advice that people were putting out. It was a trend. Um, I saw one person tweet an interesting thing that that said, it's not about one play. It's about your body of work. It's about the whole thing. That is like Coulter to me. He isn't. He doesn't really, as as far as I've seen, return to this really expansive kind of inclusive of a million different themes. Um, in his work, he he kind of really narrows and tightens up and tries to like poke like at this concentrated hole right where you are receptive to a certain idea. So the next one is Exit Strategy. I mentioned it's very. Uh, it got a lot of really good reviews. There is. Uh, how many characters in this one? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Pretty small cast, but the stage gets full very quickly. It is a group of staff at a public high school in this fictional uh, poor area of Chicago called Wrightland. It's a sp- specific neighborhood, but it's it's really recognizable if you're familiar with Chicago at all. I mean, it just feels very genuine. And uh, the play starts in the fall of the last year of school. They know that the school is getting shut down at the end of the year, and the conflict largely resides in people who have been here before, have fought this fight before, and have either given up or would like to give up, and people who are new to this fight, and people who say, no, this is still possible, we can fight for what's right and get what we need, and we can fight to keep the school open. And that's, that's, that's where this, this uh, conflict is residing. The theme of this play is really it's about um, what, it, what it means to give up. Because you're not, you know, I'm not going to get specific about how the play actually plays out on this one because it's just kind of brilliant. But it, 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 it's about what it means to give up, not only to yourself, but to on the future in general, on the human species as a product is what it gets down to. It means you're, you're giving up on everything that could be in the future. You have this uh, really excellent uh, character named Ricky, who's this assistant principal. Uh, it says, 
a casually professional head case with a mile a minute mouth. Uh, and he is like new to the school. He's only been the principal or the assistant principal for a couple of years. Um, the play starts off with this uh, prologue where he's arguing with another woman who's worked at the school for a long time who's clearly very beaten down. And they're just kind of finding out about this situation. And uh, she promptly, at the end of the conversation, walks into the next room and takes her own life. So it starts very sensational. And it's in that that character comes back as a ghost throughout the play, which is a you know classic theater <laughs> move. This is like a ah, ghost, yeah. It's just, you know Shakespeare did it. I can do it. The, the 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 way this play brings you up and then and then absolutely smacks you to the ground is pretty incredible because much like in Hit the Wall, these characters feel very different from each other, feel very specific and nuanced representations of specific types of people um, in this world, and uh, they you know they they do a big uh, school walkout and a protest and they walk up. And it, you know, seems like everything's great. And then one more scene hits you with stuff that you're not expecting. And then the last, I, I shit you not when I say the last two sentences of this play make you go, oh, that? <laughs> Th- that is what I was missing? And, or maybe I'm just an idiot as I was reading this and wasn't thinking about all the ramifications and all the implications of what it meant to close this school until you see who the last person is who's standing on stage and looking at everything and seeing who it's really affecting and who this moment really means the most to. And it's not the people who are giving up. Spoiler alert. It's not them. Um, I think this goes hand-in-hand hand with what I was saying, though, about Ike Holter and the way that he writes. It's so right now. Um, the, the, the work feels so present because it feels like something that's like, yeah, that, that, this <laughs> feels like it could genuinely happen in exactly this way. But not just that. Like, they, they, they talk a lot about um, slang. He, he has a really good use of slang in all of his plays or just, like, the common, like, words that people use. And in this one, he digs into it a couple of different times. Like, these two teachers have a conversation about the word salty because they're, they're, it, what it shows is that they're there year in and year out and they see the passing changes and fads and stuff. They talk about, oh, you remember when everybody used to say salty? I liked that word. Where did that go? I can't, I'm, I'm, I'm mad that that word went away and we had to get some new thing that I had to figure out. And I just think that that's really interesting and it speaks to this thing that I'm saying that I Coulter writes so quickly and so uh, intentionally that he can just get work out. He's not spending a year and a half redeveloping and redeveloping and redeveloping a play so, so that as he's putting work out, things are present like that. And he can talk about things like that. He doesn't have to try to make it feel timeless. He can make this feel, this is set in 2015 or 2014 or whenever this was actually came out. 2014, I want to say. Yeah, and it was produced at uh, Jackalope at the Broadway Armory in Chicago. And so that's going to be, I think, one of those mids, mid-level uh, uh, theaters. So it's a really awesome thing to see. I read him this week in a row like this because 
you can see where his, his focus is going and his at- intention is going. It's another good example of how in the character bios... Uh, well, here, let me say this. I think it's really interesting how he how Ry Coulter to read because most playwrights get their work out through these scripts that they submit to people. And they have to be, you know, these people who read these scripts read a million all the time. And they read a lot of bad ones. So it, he's got so much humor in the way that he describes everything. Like the, uh, the character... Yeah, so here's more character descriptions. Pam... Old school educator with a second to spare, end of her rope. Uh, assertive, a Sadie's an assertive educator, positive foot forward till she trips. So it's got this, like, the kind of thing that I really appreciate, or honestly, I try to do when I'm writing plays, which is make them, you know, the descriptions and the action text and the things that aren't actually said. I'm speaking to the, or rather, he is speaking to the person, reading it and imagining it and conceptualizing it. And it's a lot less formal. He just is very, very loose and free and said, still say things like, in parentheses, like, comes in like a, like, like a heat of wind and spits words like hand grenades on her fuck shit. <laughs> I think that's in Sender. I laughed out loud when I read that part. Um, and so he, 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 you can tell that he's an independent, like an indie produced playwright because of the way that he's just very free with that kind of stuff and it doesn't seem like he's uh concerned with what you uh whether you think it's prestigious or not the the text is still very full of life and really something to sink your teeth into also um i really really like reading reading these plays so as he develops more he does a couple other ones in this Rightland cycle, and those are the other ones that I could get my hand on. The next one I'm going to talk about is Sender, which I believe was produced in 2016 at Red Orchard Theater. And this one is a good old-fashioned four-person play. Love four-people plays. It's just a great dynamic, so much combinations of different kinds of things that you can do. You know, honestly, comedies... I talked a little bit about comedies last week on the Family Play episode... I, you know, I can appreciate a good comedy on the page without ever laughing out loud. I can go, huh, that was funny, you know? This, on the other hand, made me actually laugh out loud at several parts. The characters were so, 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 I wanted to be around these people when they were talking. I wanted to be a fly on the wall. And I got to be. That's why this one was fun. Uh, This one starts, this one actually is really, uh, You know, it's timely in an interesting way because it feels like a story that we may or may not have heard before. But I don't know how to say that. It's just got an interesting premise that feels very right now, like something somebody would do right now. So uh, it's about four millennials uh, who have all been friends for a number of years. Uh, one of they're all about to turn 30, one of them's kind of over 30, but that seems to be this pivotal moment for them. And uh, one of them, a year ago, Plum disappeared, just kind of vanished out of nowhere, and uh, ultimately assumed dead. He, he left a lot of stuff behind, he left a lot of debt behind. He uh, uh, evidently got in with, like, there's some hints that he may have gotten in with some bad people. They talk about this particular gang throughout all of his Rightland plays. There's this really sp- spooky gang that's going on. He may have gotten involved with that. 
I'll talk about that more in the next play. Um, but this, <laughs> what's so interesting about Sender, this play, is, uh, oh, yeah, well, the play starts when he comes back. So he comes back after a year of being gone, and this woman who he was lovers with, slash friends, you know, in and out, one of those things, and it starts with him entering the back gate, and that's the first thing you see is him, is her seeing him. And uh, there's like there's like a mystery going on of like why did he go? Does he does he owe people money or something like that? And the thing that he turns around on and says was, no, I was just in Wyoming, you know, I needed to get away, so I turned off my phone and everything and just ran away from everything all at once. But you know, now I'm back, so it's cool. <laughs> And every time somebody meets them, the first thing they do is they're really, really mad. But then they're, oh, my God, I'm so glad you're back and you're not dead. And they, they, they totally, like, um, even though he's done this very shitty thing, it's a very shitty thing that showed no respect for anybody else but him, everybody's very quick to get re-caught up in his toxic nonsense there, except for one particular character who, oh my gosh, is just a bullet train of a woman, um, Cassandra. Uh, she's described as the only actual adult, finally found out what's up in life and will take the risk, damn the consequence. Knows exactly what's wrong with everyone else. Would rather hear a lie than accept the truth. Early 30s. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about when he's describing characters. You immediately know who that person is. This play is another really good example of this kind of, uh, the, of the way that Ike Holter handles race. It's pretty clear to me, reading this play, that everyone in this play is black, but there's, there's not quite, the, so there's no explicit reference in the biography, and then throughout the play there are very few explicit references. I think there's one to Lynx, the guy who left and came back. It's, uh, it's very interesting how he gets the feeling of these people across to you in their words. He gives them just all the right things to say that are justified in, in, in exactly the right way so you know kind of what these people are getting after and what they want. So in this one, you have the guy who ran away. You have the girl who never grew up. This the, you know, the girl that smokes cigarettes <laughs> is Tess, and she's just got a wild mouth about her. And then you've got this other guy, Jordan, who is, uh, they say he's a rate, late bloomer, resident tag-along, suddenly quick-witted, former jet-setter with wings recently clipped, works at Groupon, trapped and desperate for escape. And he's kind of, like, stuck in the middle of not being able to grow up. And then you have the other one, Cassandra, who has seen herself as, like, fully grown up, the only adult that she knows. She's pissed at all of her friends for acting like children. And they do. They have, like, college kids the whole time. That's what the play is really about. It's about escaping age and, like, trying to, like, run away from the fact that you're growing up, which feels really interesting when you think about, uh, like, millennial and millennial culture. Depending how you slice it, I'm either the last millennial or the first Gen Z. And I can, I can see, I don't know, I see both, you know. I... I, I, I totally see what's happening to people in this play. That I definitely relate to. Because it's it's this, like, not being ready to grow up because it feels like you wanted to grow up in a different world than already exists. 
And so it's almost like you're waiting for the world to be better, a better thing for you to grow into. And you can't do that because, you, first of all, you can't. You, you just can't. You're gonna, you're gonna grow up. Uh, that, that's not something that stops. I think the way in which this play ends on this kind of really interesting tension of a forced reconciliation, where there's this ultimatum between two characters, not the ones you're necessarily expecting, about what to do next. Um, <clears throat> and it just says a lot about what it means to grow up and, and why people do when they do. And what Halter seems to posit by the end of this play is that people only accept that they need to grow up when they are faced with no other choice, really. Is that it's only when uh, there's no other options that people will finally take the step to mature and grow up. It's really interesting to me that this is one of the ones that's actually uh, published because it's it's definitely a comedy. Like, it's very funny. I mean, it's gets, it gets serious, obviously, because of the... The nature of the situation, um, but you know, their people's pasts come up, and it's it again. It just feels very right now. It feels like people that I could meet or hang out with or know at some point. So that's Sender. I think Sender was excellent. Uh, actually, had fun reading it. So the last one here that I want to touch on. I normally do five plays, but I only got four because that's all I can get is the one that I referenced at the beginning that he won the award for during the time that I ran into him and was like, Hi, I, I don't know any of your work, but you won an award and you're a playwright and I think that's really cool. <laughs> um, damn, this one's dark. He, I mean, thank goodness. I mean, I love, don't get me wrong, if you can make me laugh on the page, I'm in. You've got me. You, you know, it's one of the, comedy is one of those things that, like, there is, like an objective reaction, I laughed. So I, it was funny. <laughs> it was funny to me. But, you know, I personally uh, really love kind of the things you can do in theater that are, I don't know, dark and twisted in some ways. Um, I here as, as in all of these, does this kind of sensationalized realism. That, that dialogue style that I talked about in Hit the Wall, the cascade of just constant flow and flow and flow of language, not like Harold Pinter, or not like anybody like who is, you know, known for this da 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 like back and forth clipped um, short lines, like just, he's got the, it's like water. It's like constantly flowing through each other. Um, that's present in all of these works as well. Sender and, uh, Less in Exit Strategy, but a lot in Sender, and a lot, a lot in uh, The Wolf at the End of the Block, which is this next one. I believe this premiered in 2016, I want to say. No, excuse me, 2017. Um, Teatro Vista. Uh, there, It's interesting because these characters, this, this play, he, uh, I mentioned that he usually doesn't describe race in um, the biographies of characters. However, in this one, he, it, he does for every single person. So you've got these Abe, um, Alejandro goes by Abe. He's in his early 30s. He's Latino. Um, and then you have his sister, Miranda. Uh, she's finally escaping from her messed up past. You have uh, Nunley, who's a black deli owner where Abe works. 
You have Frida, who is a reporter, who's a free spirit, who's a bit broken down by the system, has to fight for everything, even when the stakes are low, knows what she wants, smooth talker, and needs to strike hard and fast. She's fun. I, I, was, I, would, I would, yeah. I can think of several people I know that would be brilliant as this part, uh, Frida. It's really smart, and it's funny. Um, but damn, this one's dark. And it has, uh, this one, I look at, and I'm like, oh, this is about Chicago. I know all of his Reitland plays um, are really, it's important that they're set in Chicago. It's always relevant to the story because it's set under these given circumstances of living in Chicago. I mean, Ike Coulter is, I think he's from, I want to say he's from Minnesota. He, I, the way he writes his plays, it's so clear that he loves Chicago. Um, and I like him for that reason. This one uh, is, is is, uh, has a really interesting, uh, path through, it's, it's, you know, it reminds me more of Exit Strategy or Hit the Wall than Sender, in that it's taking a social issue and talking about a specific idea, interpersonal idea within that, um, so th this one won, won a couple of awards, and it's probably next to... Exit Strategy, his most acclaimed work. Um, and then also, you know, Hit the Wall. But, so what takes place in this play, actually, is Abe is attacked. That's the first thing you see is him, his, after this attack, he's bloody and beaten up. He's fucked up. He's, uh, he does this monologue about running away from things and being, being just brutally attacked. And then you see... He runs off, and you see uh, Nunley, his uh, boss, kind of looking for him around the alley. And, oh, the other thing that it was big and hit the wall that I'm really glad he kind of brings back more in The Wolf at the End of the Block is his transitions and the way he moves from scene to scene very fluidly. I mean, that cascading dialogue helps, but it's always like... The, a character from the next scene will have the last line of the previous scene, and then the caption is instantly, we're in an, boom, alley, and it says we're in the alley scene. Um, and he insists that this set is very minimalistic and that you're supposed to just move, move, move through it. So uh, Abe reveals to everyone, evidently he's supposed to be sober, and he used to, um, it seems like he used to have a drinking problem that I don't think they ever make explicit, but he basically says all the time that he doesn't really drink or when he went down to this particular bar this night he had like one drink and then later he says he had like one or two drinks uh but he says that he got attacked uh in this bar it was a hate crime there were there were racial th slurs thrown around um and he was uh uh beaten it's just the crap got beaten out of him and so uh, his sister, who is kind of an aspiring writer and she wants to be a reporter throughout this thing, is like, we need to get this story out there that this happened, that this hate crime and things like this can happen in Chicago and people don't know that, you know, things can be so violent and so bad. So uh, they find Frida, who is a reporter, and he finally tells her the story, and he says that he was beaten by an off-duty cop who flashed his badge at him before he uh, brutally attacked him. And Frida really digs into him 
uh, and it seems totally unfair the way that she's like, well, how do you know who was there? What's the evidence? How many drinks did you have? Do you think that nobody's going to ask how many drinks you had that night? Da 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 da, and kind of like really grilling and getting into him. Um, I'm going to reveal. So, spoiler alert! I'm going to reveal a little bit more about this one because of the way it gets at its uh, idea, and that's kind of the whole thing is kind of important for that. So before the end, it's kind of revealed that, not kind of, <laughs> it's revealed that Abe is lying about what actually happened. What actually went down is that he got very, very drunk and uh, then challenged this guy to a fight because of, uh, well, there was a little bit of a tussle. It's kind of unclear about who started what. But then he challenged him to a fight and then went out to the uh, parking lot and he says he beat the living hell out of him. And that uh, he actually won the fight. And that Abe laid this cop out on the ground for this fight. So then the conflict com- becomes about whether or not to tell the truth. Interestingly enough, a cop character starts showing up. James is, is what he's called. He's the only character that's described as white in the play. And uh, he kind of he comes into Nunley's bar at one point in a kind of knowing way and is clearly kind of kind of looking for something. And then Nunley's like, do you, do you know anything about that boy that got beat down like down the street? And uh, Nunley basically says, don't assume everything. Why don't you go talk to the guy that actually worked that bar that night? Um, and it's kind of heavily implied that he might be the one that was in the fight with him and uh that character is uh terrifying terrifying he's described as knowing how to use his power in the bio and he definitely does i think he has the longest monologue there's this or that might be abe there's this one near the end uh who has that yeah james uh, when he's talking to Nunley in this very scene, actually, he goes on this long, long tirade about expectations of other people when you meet them and what you expect them to look like and whether or not they really, or not look like, but expect them to act like and, like, re- really saying that it doesn't matter and what matters is the greater truth behind it. Um, you know, and that's the... <laughs> That's the thing that they're getting at the whole time. Everybody, people lie in this play all the time, but it's only when they're protecting the greater truth. It's like they're trying to um, lie about the, the, the content, but not the reality of the situation, uh, or effectively something like that. Um, the, 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 it shows his style really brilliantly, where he takes this big social issue and he shows all the ways in it, that it becomes so interpersonal. And uh, you do get a final kick in the pants. In the last couple of lines, just like with other I Cold Your Plays, he'll knock you in the teeth. Man, he takes these big, big swings at your head when you're not expecting it. And they always come right at a very clearly planned moment when he has you thinking about all these other little things. And then uh, finally, he just kind of brings you around to his like, and here you go on a platter. I'm going to shove it in your teeth. <laughs> and Wolf at the end of the block definitely feels that way the most. Uh, 
and it's 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 like a little bit of a mystery. It's 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 spooky and eerie and things like that. So all in all, um, if I'm going to recommend uh, an Ike Holter play uh, for you to read, it depends on what you like and what you're interested in. I would say exit strategy, just as a general, especially if you're a theater person and want to know something of his, is a really good one to know and a good one to read and have on your shelf because it's... I've read that one a couple times, actually. Um, and the way it reveals yourself to you, you're going along and you're like, oh, this is nice, this is nice, this is nice. Last two sentences. Ah, oh, ooh. yeah. It's brutal. Um, sender is... If you're, if you're somebody who experiences something... <laughs> the fear of aging, you know, and the fear of what you've always been and what that means about who you're going to be next. Um, Sender is a lovely little piece of philosophy about how growing up really impacts you. And Wolf of the End of the Block, I'll be honest, is dense. And it's in, in this kind of, it's the strongest version of this oh, constantly overlapping dialogue other than maybe Hit the Wall. Um, and so it's really dense, but it's got a good mystery, and it's and it's dark, and it's gritty, and he really, really pulls the dirt out from under your fingernails and shows it to you. So those are going to be my recommendations for this week. So just a couple corrections for the end of the episode. Today, um, I kept calling it the right lens cycle. It's, he actually refers to it as the Rightland Saga, and the first of those plays was actually in 2013, Between Hit the Wall and Exit Strategy. So it, I, I mentioned that it started in 2017 for some reason, and I don't, I don't know why I did that. Um, and the first play that used the Slash, I believe it was Blue Heart, but it may have been Cloud Nine. I'm so sorry. I couldn't figure it out. Uh, but thanks for sticking with me today anyway. Thank you so much for taking some time to listen and talk about plays with me. I'll be back next week. Bye-bye.